This is a one and all media podcast. We're in a series called The Trouble with Christianity. And what we're saying is there are still a lot of people who are very open to a relationship with Jesus. They, they've investigated the coherency of the Word of God, but there's still a few things that they still can't get their head around. So we are dealing with these. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. In this episode, Pastor Jeff has the rest of his message that addresses the question why does God kill innocent people? This is part of a series called The Trouble with Christianity, and this series is helping us deal with some big questions that we may have about Christianity. To help address this topic, we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Romans chapter 3. No matter where you are in your faith, we hope this gives you greater understanding about God and Christianity. Here's Pastor Jeff with the rest of the message. Now, this helps us understand why we are where we are today. Ultimate reality is not seen so much as a supernatural order, but as a natural order, and that is malleable, which means we can shape the natural world now through the advancement of science. We have the ability to shape the natural order to conform to our hopes, wishes, and desires. So if we can do that with a natural order, says Lewis, why can't we do that with a spiritual order? So instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. Uh, But I want you to notice something. We're really kidding ourselves because we've not conformed reality to us. It's an illusion. If we jump off the five-story building and the rope breaks, let me tell you, gravity's still in full effect. The laws of physics have not been altered, have not been changed. If the parachute doesn't open, splat on the ground. Now, we've also done the same thing with spiritual law. We seek to create our own preferred moral law. We seek to create our own preferred spiritual reality, our own God. It's totally subjective. We're attempting to force the spiritual world to conform to what we want. And Lewis says, why not? We gained a new confidence through the sciences that we can control the physical environment that has now spilled over. So we now think we can reshape the metaphysical, the spiritual realm as well. We can shape the physical world. Why not shape the spiritual world to my personal preferences? Therefore, and I quote, it seems unfair to us that we should determine that it is all right to have sex outside of marriage and then later discover that there's a God who will punish us for that. We can't fathom that because our culture believes so deeply in our personal rights. We have such a sense of entitlement that the very idea of divine judgment seems impossible. And we're going to be shocked to find out, says Lewis, that there's a law above and beyond our laws to which every soul is subject. 
So when we think, how dare you judge me, God? I've created a God who likes all the things I like and hates all the things I hate. We're gonna be surprised that like the law of gravity, the spiritual law is also absolute. We can create God in our own image. We can live under the illusion that God is who I think he should be or is who I really think that he is. But that doesn't change the reality of spiritual reality, that God is who he says he is, revealed in Jesus Christ, validated by the historical reality of the resurrection. So one, was God just when he commanded the annihilation of specific people group? Absolutely. Two, are love and judgment incompatible? Absolutely not. Three, why is this generation so opposed to an angry God? Because it's created its own spiritual reality apart from objective truth. We want our spiritual cake and eat it too. We want it on our own terms. Now four, quickly, I have to point this one out because it's something that I hear quite often. The complaint is, if God smites evildoers, then why can't we? Remember what Becky Pippert said, and hope has its reasons. She says, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. When the modern world hears this, they often reply by saying something like this. Well, if you believe in a God who smites evildoers, you may think it perfectly justified to do some of the smiting yourself. But friends, if you understand the objective nature of God and the gospel, you know the opposite is true. Miroslav Volf, not a Christian, but witnessed horrible violence for most of his life, so this is not just theory to him, says that the lack of belief in a God of justice secretly nourishes violence. Now, let me read the quote. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. Do you see what he's saying? We want in our human experience, the perpetrator of crimes to pay and pay hard. It's human nature. There's an overwhelming desire for revenge. Revenge movies are number one sellers. And it's only prevention of retribution, which Rwanda discovered, which South Africa has discovered, is to know that God will one day have the final say in human history. Miroslav Volf, again, not a Christ follower, says the best resource to stop the cycle of revenge is the concept of God's divine justice. He goes on to say, only if I'm certain there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power in the here and now to refrain. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Delayed justice is not the same thing as no justice. God took out the Amalekites. Somebody might say, well, why does God permit Amalekite types still today? And the answer is today's different. We have an opportunity of repentance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and for the Holy Spirit to transform an individual from the inside out. But make no mistake, one day ultimate justice is coming. He goes on to say in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. One day justice will roll like a river and we'll all stand before God and give an account for the manner in which we've lived. Now somebody says, but Jeff, the problem I have as a Christian 
is that you've told me on numerous occasions that we're all wicked. We're all sinners. So what real difference does Jesus make? Uh, This is where God speaks to us, believe it or not, through the Amalekites and Canaanites. And I believe it's why the story was included in the Old Testament. One, because it's history. And the Bible tends to tell you history, whether it agrees with it or not. And two, it gives us foreknowledge of something greater. God gave them 400 years to repent. He is so patient and merciful with the worst of sinners. Those who repent are spared. This is a foreshadowing of the gospel and the heart of God. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. So we're all culpable. Yet, just like in the Old Testament, God always sends a delegation to urge repentance. Only this time, he stepped into the human experience himself. He was the delegation. He comes to earth himself, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the gospel of grace. It's not just Hitler and Stalin and Lenin who will stand before God. It's you and me. And so God sent Jesus, validated by his resurrection, to urge you and I to repent and to receive his salvation. And folks, his plan is brilliant. You know why? Because his plan shows you that justice and love are compatible. In Romans 3, Paul is trying to explain to us what Jesus actually accomplished through his cross. And he says in verse 26, he did it, it is the crucifixion. God sent Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the death of Jesus on the cross actually demonstrated the justice of God. How? Because sin has to be punished. And the wages of sin is death. Because all sin wounds creatures that God has created in his own image. And it causes death and destruction. But rather than punish us, God stepped into our time and our place, gave his own life for us on the cross of Jesus Christ so that righteousness has been upheld and that sin has been punished. Jesus paid the debt your sin and my sin owe. Therefore, righteousness is upheld, justice is upheld, but also the love of God is upheld because rather than punishing us, he takes our punishment on his shoulders. And that's why the writer says, he did this so as to become just, justice has been upheld, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus God is the great justifier and he does so motivated out of his love because it is not the will of God that anyone should be separated from him. But Jesus does more than that because his justice will one day roll like a river. Now stay with me. So important as we close this. Because his justice will one day roll like a river in the future, we can stop the cycle of retribution in the present. Remember what Miroslav Volf says? He says, the best resource to stop the cycle of revenge is the concept of God's divine judgment. Only if I'm certain there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly, do I then have the power to refrain. Can I illustrate this for you? How many of you remember what happened October 2nd, 2006 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in a little Amish community? I remember seeing the photos, the pictures on the news, CBS, NBC, they all carried the story. Charles Carl Roberts, the local milkman, delivered milk every day to the small children and their families in this little Amish community. 
into a one-room Amish school called the West Nickel Mines School, about 12 miles southeast of Lancaster City. One morning, Roberts kissed his wife and his two young sons goodbye. His wife was a Christ follower, is a Christ follower, and drove to the little Amish school and backed his truck that he had borrowed from his father-in-law filled with ammunition up to the front door of the school, got out of the car, got out of the truck, went into the classroom, chased the teachers away, forced all the young boys outside, and then took the remaining 10 Amish girls between the ages of 6 and 13 and shot them. The newspaper reporter who followed this story said the violence that is far too common in one society blasted its way into the nonviolent, peaceful community of a gentle people. You know, as I read, reread the story, because last week I reread the journal articles, I actually watched a documentary, and I watched a, a drama that was produced, I think, by a Lifetime. The reading was actually more moving than watching the films. To imagine what it would feel like to lose a young daughter between the ages of 6 and 13, to know, to be told by the police that your daughter has just been killed, that she's passed away. The remarkable thing was, though, that very soon the real story was about the Amish community and how they responded. They were shocked. They were heartbroken. They were weeping. There were tears. But they forgave, and they almost forgave instantaneously because within just a few hours of the shooting, the Amish leaders, including the father of one of the young girls that had been murdered by this man, they visited the now widow of the person who perpetrated the crime. When the Amish leaders of the community arrived at their door, she was with her father being comforted concerning what her husband had just done. She thought the Amish community was there to rebuke her, to scold her. Instead, these Amish leaders, including fathers whose daughters had been killed, entered the home. And this was their word. They started by saying, we are sorry for your loss. The mother looked and said, or the wife looks at what loss? My loss? And the Amish community responded by saying, you lost a husband. Your children have lost their father. We grieve for you as well. We come here to tell you that we forgive him. For the Bible says, for as you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive yours also. We will not allow hatred, they said, into our hearts. We know that you will be facing harsh judgments. And we would like to offer you our help. We are your neighbors. And if there's anything that you need at all, don't hesitate to call on us. We hope that you will let us know. She was so overwhelmed by their concern for her and her children. She just began to weep. And in the reporter's own words, she writes, the Amish culture closely follows the teachings of Jesus who taught his followers to forgive one another, to place the needs of others before themselves, and to rest in the knowledge that vengeance and revenge is to be left up to God. But notice this final postscript. The Amish community actually took up money to support the family of Charles Roberts. They brought food and money and clothing because he had left his wife and children without provision. The Amish community loved and forgave the family whose husband was the perpetrator of the criminal activity. Friends, I believe that true Christianity is the only hope for this world. I'm serious about that. I know it's the only hope for my heart. But only when there is a certainty of God's final judgment, 
can you live in peace with each other. Forgiving. Only when you allow the retribution that is due and just to belong to an all-wise, all-powerful God who has the power and the wisdom to determine how to right the wrongs of humanity. And so I give you two challenges, and they're quite serious, but they're short. Number one, repent. No matter how hard you have tried to conform spiritual reality to your personal preference, can I tell you something? When you stand before God on the day of judgment, it won't matter. The truth of God is objective truth. You cannot form spiritual reality to your own liking. It is what it is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You need a mediator. When you stand before God, when I stand before God as a sinner, all the wrongs that we've done matter. And we need a mediator. We need somebody to step in front of us to face the judge on our behalf. And in 1 Timothy 2, we're told God is our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. I urge you, in a real way, God continues to send ambassadors of the gospel into his world. And even though they may be killed or persecuted, or ignored. Every time the gospel is preached, God sends his ambassadors to give you the good news of repentance and salvation. If you've heard that today, and maybe you had some troubles with Christianity, maybe some walls have broken down suddenly, but can I tell you, you must conform to spiritual reality, not spirituality conforming to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He leads the greatest delegation of all time on behalf of God the Father who does not will or wish that anyone should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. But there's a second point, and it's like the first, repent. Number one, repent. Number two, repent. In the first repentance, I am hoping those far from God who have never knelt at the cross and understand the power of salvation will repent. But in this case, I'm asking all of us who are believers, us who are believers, to repent. Because just because you are saved by grace through faith, does not mean that God will not discipline you when you commit injustice. Hebrews chapter 12, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God does save you from your sins, but it does not save you from the reaping and sowing principle. Remember, Paul wrote Galatians 6, 7 to the believers. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Listen, God loves you and he loves everybody around you, which is why he needs to discipline you when you do things that wound not only yourself, but your community, your children, your family, your world. Stop this thing of pornography and drug addiction and sexual immorality of any kind and stealing and cheating and lying and deceit and slandering and gossiping and adultery and fornication. Stop this thing. Because the Bible says in Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters. And remember, an idolater is anyone who puts anything above and beyond the pursuit of Christ. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
So as God's ambassador, I beg you to repent. Repent for the sake of your family and your community and generations to come. And so that you will not have to face the harsh discipline of a loving father. One of my favorite, and I'll close with this, one of my favorite illustrations comes out of the last couple of pages of Charles Colson's book called Loving God. He talks about, and I've used this before, but I think in light of where we are now, this can really bring home our point. He talks about a man by the name of Telemachus, a fourth century Asiatic monk who lived at the top of a mountain in recluse and privacy among his flowers and plants, trees and gardens. And because he was quiet in his spirit, he had learned to distinguish the voice of God. And finally, one day a morning came, he was speaking with God and he'd heard the distinct voice of God tell him to leave his home in the mountain and go down into the city. But even though he questioned as to why God would have him do this, he heard no response, so he made his way. He goes by faith, makes his way down into the city, and as he arrives, he is pushed in together with a crowd into the gladiatorial arena where the gladiators were entertaining the people with murder and bloodshed. Telemachus, because he's not been desensitized by culture, is moved by this. Deeply troubled in his spirit, he stands up in the middle of the fights and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. Of course, the crowd ignores him. He runs down a few rows closer to the bed of the arena. And once again, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. In the name of Jesus, forbear the bloodshed, the atrocity, the entertainment. And finally, when he's ignored again, he runs down into the floor of the arena and he shouts as loud as he can, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. And the crowd began to notice him and they began to shout to the Roman guard, running through with the sword, running through with the sword. And at the request of the people, the Roman soldier takes the sword and runs him through. Colson says the historian Lecky says as Telemachus is dying with the sword thrust in his side, he says one more time in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. And Lecky goes on to say that there were many other things brought to bear into this situation. But he says because of what Telemachus did, never again was there a fight and bloodshed in the gladiatorial arena. Can I say something to you? I think when Jesus died and the sword is thrust into his side, your sins and my sins have been forgiven because he's paid our sin debt. We're saved by grace through faith. But remember, the Bible tells us that we are saved in order that we might be sanctified. We are forgiven of our sins in order that the spirit of God could come in and make us holy and pure. And I think Jesus, as he's dying, at least part of him would have uttered, in the name of God, stop this sin. It's destroying your family. It's destroying you and culture and generations to come. So I say to you, repent. Whatever it is, repent. Because you will face the discipline of a holy and righteous God whose love and justice are incredibly compatible. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. And I ask you now in Jesus' name that our eyes would have been open to the seriousness of the sin that dwells within us, that we would take it more seriously, that sexual purity would become a priority to us, 
that if we're watching anything, if we're going any place, if we're doing anything, if we're listening to anything that violates the objective spiritual moral law that we would begin to conform our lives to its reality rather than trying to conform spiritual reality to our pleasures and our wants and desires. Remind us there is a God who loves us and because he loves us, he disciplines us. May we be true to him who has saved us by his grace in Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.